But Judges chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 6 here in just a moment. Um, right now, our beloved Boston Celtics are in the playoffs, and they are in round two fighting against the nasty Washington Wizards. No one likes the Washington Wizards. And they play today, this evening, in fact, if you want to schedule your time around that. The Washington Wizards have a player on their team named Markeith Morris. And Markeith, in game one, had a nasty ankle injury, put him out the rest of the game. And in game two, everyone was surprised when Markeith suited up and came out to play. And even more surprised when Markeith, with this serious injury, just dominated. He had a huge game in game two. And then the rumors started to swirl. You see, Markeith has an identical twin brother who plays for the Detroit Pistons <laughs> named Marcus. And I'm familiar with Marcus and Markeith because they played college ball at the University of Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Anybody? Yes. And so, uh, and they are identical twins. Their haircut is the same. Their beards are trimmed the same. They're covered in tattoos. And even their ink is nearly identical. It's really weird. It's a little extreme even for twins. And so the rumor was Marcus snuck in and he put on Markeith's jersey and he played in Markeith's place in that game. And it was funny, a good bit of levity in, in this series uh, and made for some good articles. How to tell the difference between Marcus and Markeith. Uh, it was good reading this past week. But still you might think, we could have a problem. If I can't tell the difference between Markeith and Marcus, it could be a very serious problem for the NBA. In, indeed, it could be a serious problem for the NBA. Uh, an even greater problem would be this, if God's people were indistinguishable from the world around us. If we look exactly like those who do not walk with the Lord, if we live the same way, we've got a problem. You see, Christian marriages should not look like non-Christian marriages. It's a problem when Christian singles live like non-Christian singles. It's a problem when we handle our work, our neighbors, our sexuality, our politics like non-Christians. There is something fundamentally different about people who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so it's a problem when we look like the world. And that's the problem that we're faced with in Judges chapter 2 with God's people Israel. Their problem is this. They're supposed to be a people set apart. The right word for that is holy. They're supposed to be a holy people, a set apart people. Uh, but instead, we find that they have embraced the anti-Yahweh ways of the people around them. That's a problem, a significant problem. So last week, we started our study in the book of Judges in chapter 1 with what might be called the introduction. And today, we get another introduction. How about that? Judges has two introductions in it. And there's a little bit of difference between the two introductions. Uh, the first introduction, chapter 1, focuses primarily on military matters. The second introduction, what we'll read today, deals primarily with religious matters. Another difference is that the first introduction focuses on a fairly narrow sliver of time within the period of Israel's history. But the second introduction, our passage that we read today, takes a, a snapshot from 30,000 feet. It looks at the whole scope of the history of the book of Judges. It gives us this incredible summary 
that you and I as students of the Word can carry with us as we continue in our study of Judges in the weeks ahead. And so today we're looking at Judges from 30,000 feet. The big picture view tells us this, that for almost 300 years in the book of Judges, God's people are stuck in this horrible cycle. They will turn from God. They'll embrace the false gods of the people around them. Because of that, God will send an enemy nation to oppress his people. In that oppression, God's people will groan in their suffering. God hears their suffering, and he sends a deliverer, a judge. And the judge comes and delivers God's people. God's people will walk with the Lord for a period of time, and then the whole cycle starts all over again. In, in this entire book, nearly 300 years, this cycle repeats itself over and over again in greater and greater sickening ways. Now, God's desire in the book of Judges is for his people to walk with him in holiness. That's what he wants to shape among these people in his promised land, that they would be his holy people. And his desire for our church is the same today, that we would be his holy people set apart for His glory, obeying His Word. That's what the book of Judges calls us to today. And so here's what I I hope to accomplish today. The call of the text is simple. The call of the text is that God's people would live like God's holy people. And so I want to show you in the passage some things that are always true about us, some things that are always true about God. And my hope is that the result will be an intentional pursuit of holiness on our part. I want you to follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read this whole passage in one chunk. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 6, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. Remember, this is big picture overview. We're getting a summary of the book of Judges before we dive into the book of Judges entirely, all right? We start where we did last week with the death of Joshua. It's told to us again starting in chapter 2, verse 6. Follow along with me as I read. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. 
Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their fathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Labo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. No one's life verse comes from the passage we just read. It's a hard passage. It's, I mean, it, it is a broad scope of sinful rebellion, and it just gives us a little foretaste of the judgment and the hardship that is to come in this book. Now, we might say, well, this, this introduction is just limited, and even this period is just limited to this time frame, 200 and some odd years. And sure, there are some things that are unique about this period in history for God's people, But there are also some truths that are everlasting, truths that will shape our holiness if we will grasp them today. Let me share with you these four truths, these things that are always true that shape our holiness. The first is this, God's people are always in a battle for holiness. One thing that's always true is that God's people are always in a battle for holiness. Verses 6 through 13 spell this out for us. So in our passage, it opens with God's people doing well. It closes with God's people doing horrible. We're reintroduced to Joshua, the great leader of God's people. He's brought them into the promised land. He's led them in the majority of the conquest of the promised land. And Joshua walks in strict faithfulness with the Lord. The Lord gives a command. Joshua doesn't question it. He does it. God says, I want you to cross this river. Joshua goes. God says, I want you to walk around this city to knock down the walls. Joshua walks. He does what the Lord tells him to do. Therefore, so do the people, and they have great success as they walk in obedience to the Lord. But then Joshua died. And what happens after Joshua dies and his generation after him die? Look at verses 10 and 11 in your Bible. Verse 10 says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up 
who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Verse 11, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 11, they served the Baals. Verse 13, they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. What does that mean? Well, join me on a magic carpet ride through the land of paganism. Here we go. Once upon a time, you're an Israelite farmer. And your farm is right next to a Canaanite farmer in the promised land. Now, that Canaanite farmer shouldn't be there, but your people didn't do what God told your people to do, so he's there. And you don't have the generational knowledge about farming that this Canaanite farmer does. His family has been on that same piece of property for many, many generations. The generations before you were wandering, warring nomads. And before that, your generations were slaves in Egypt making bricks. So you have no generational knowledge passed down from father to son to son to son. You just show up and here you are, it's time to plant. So you begin to do exactly what you see your Canaanite neighbor do. When he plows, you plow. When he plants, you plant. When it rains on his land, it rains on your land. And when it's time to harvest, he harvests and you harvest. But here's what you notice. When he harvests, he gets higher yields. He gets more crop per acre than you do. And you've done exactly the same thing he did. And so you go over to the fence and you say, howdy neighbor, tell me your secret. And he runs through a checklist. All right, well, did you, did you plow at this point? Yeah, I did. And did you plant? Yeah. All right. And you, uh, you got water? Yeah. And you weeded? You did all these things? And uh, did you sacrifice to Baal and Ashtoreth? Oh, what? No? Tell me about that. Well, in town, there's, a, there's this place you can go. It's the temple to the bell. And here's how we view the world, the way the seasons run, how we go from winter to spring. The, the way all that happens is because Baal, the man god, and Ashtoreth, the female gods over this area, well, they take in part in divine romance, and that produces life. So spring comes from winter because Baal and Ashtoreth meet up and they do what they're supposed to do and they produce life. And it's the same for my crops. So I went to the temple and I met with a priestess and we imitated the divine act of romance in order to awaken our sleepy Baal and his sleepy Ashtoreth so that they would produce life and fertility in my crops. Well, you need crops. You need food. And you've got a quick fix right here. And there's something in your twisted mind that seems appealing to worshiping with a temple prostitute. So that's what God's people did to make their farms great and to get their harvests. They gave their hearts, their souls, their marriages to make-believe gods, Baals, and Ashtoreths. Listen to the verbs used to describe their relationship with these false gods. Verse 11 says they served the Baals. Verse 12, they forsook the Lord. They followed and worshipped various gods. Verse 13, they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Verse 17, they prostituted themselves to other gods. That's more than metaphor. Verse 19, They are following, serving, worshiping. Chapter 3, verse 6, they are again serving these false gods. Israel is all in with these false gods. 
And in the battle for holiness, they have failed, utterly failed. They're supposed to be a people set apart, a holy people. Rather, they have become indistinguishable from the world around them. And it's not that they outright quit their Yahweh-observing ways. All they did was mix in a little bit of Baal with a little bit of Yahweh. I'll take a little bit of Ashtoreth as well, and here's some Molech, and we're going to mix it all together, and I'll worship all of these gods, and hopefully that will do me well. They become indistinguishable from the world around them. Man, am I glad this in no way applies to us. We are simply too modern and too civilized to fall for such things. And to be fair, it's not like you're visiting some hilltop shrine to Baal someplace in the area. But instead, we've given those shrines space in our hearts, in our homes. We are not immune to the sin of the Israelites. We are not immune from idolatry, nor are we immune from blending so much with the culture around us that we lose our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus. The pagan view of the Canaanites was that there were many gods for the many different facets of life. Here's a God for this part and a God for this part and a God for this part. But the view of Israel should have been, and the view of the Christian church is that there is one God, and all of life is under his lordship. So the question you and I would ask at this point, is every area of my life under the lordship of God? Is there any place that I withhold for myself, any area of my heart that I reserve for me and I keep from him? So we can do some diagnosing this morning. Uh, Pastor and author Tim Keller, he gives a couple of questions we can use to help diagnose areas of our lives that may not belong to Jesus. Here's two questions you need to ask yourself today. One, am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Second, am I willing to accept whatever God sins in this area? So let's take my parenting. Am I willing to do whatever God says in relationship to my children? Am I willing to accept whatever God sins in this area? Whatever the area is, wherever we answer no, that's an area of our lives that we have already given over to an alternative God. It may seem odd to talk about Christians who struggle with idolatry. But you have to remember, in Judges chapter 2, we are dealing with the covenant community, not outsiders. This is God's people who are in a war for their holiness against idols around them. And so we've got to find ourselves in the text. Would you be so honest this morning as to identify the idols that are lurking in your life? Would you be so brave as to pray, God, open my eyes to the unseen idols, the places where you do not have lordship? Would you commit to take positive steps in repentance towards your holiness today? Holiness is a constant battle, a day-to-day battle. Let today be a day of victory as you turn to the Lord and away from our make-believe gods. There's a second truth that is always true in this passage. One is that God's people are always in a battle for holiness. Second is that God is always faithful. 
always faithful. Verses 14 and 15 show us God's response to Israel's idolatry. Look at it with me. Verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. And here's the key line. Look at it, verse 15. Just as he had sworn to them. When we think of God's faithfulness, we normally associate that with positive things. However, there's another side to God's faithfulness. God's judgment on sin is also a reflection of his faithfulness. God's people face his judgment. Why? Because this is what he had sworn to them. God's warnings to Israel started long before Judges chapter 2. One example is in Leviticus chapter 26. And in God's covenant relationship with Israel, he's told them this, look, if If you'll be my people, I'll be your God. I will pour out blessing after blessing after blessing. But here's some things I need you to keep, some ways I need you to live and worship. And when you don't do that, when you break this covenant, here's the judgment that's going to come your way. In Leviticus 26, God says, If you do not obey me but act with hostility toward me, I will act with furious hostility toward you. I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw a sword to chase after you. So your land will become desolate and your cities will become ruins. Those who survive in the lands of your enemies will waste away because of their sin. That's Leviticus 26. So here in Judges chapter 2, we have the fulfillment of, Of that promise, God is faithful to the word he has given to his people. It may be a severe faithfulness, it may be a difficult faithfulness, but it is still faithfulness on the part of our God. And you may think, oh, that's just Old Testament, that's just the old God. But look, John the Apostle had a vision of heaven in the end of all things, And he describes it in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And here's one thing he sees. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. He judges and makes war in righteousness. So the God of Judges 2 is also the God of Revelation chapter 19, who judges sin, who makes war in righteousness against unrighteousness. And if I'm not a follower of Jesus, I ought to quiver a bit at this reality of God's faithfulness to judge sin. I ought to consider the reality of that judgment at the end of my days. And today, hear the warning from God's word. And today, hear the call from a God who loves me. And today, trust in that God to rescue me from this terrifying and true judgment. And if I'm a believer, the next time I sing, great is thy faithfulness, I will shake just a bit to think of what Christ endured on the cross as he absorbed God's faithful judgment on my sin. And to think of the faithfulness of a God who will rescue me from sin, a rescue that I do not deserve, I have not earned, God's faithfulness to judge sin is for me motivation to walk in holiness with him. Here's some things that are always true from Judges chapter 2. We're always in a battle for holiness. God is always faithful even in his judgment. Third, 
God is always compassionate. Verses 16 through 18 in chapter 2. They begin to describe this time period of the judges and they give the overview of the cycle. Israel sins, God judges them, God sends a deliverer, they're rescued, they walk with the Lord for a time, and then they go back to their sin. We keep using the word judge, I don't want to presume that we know what that word means. What does it mean when it says judge? When you and I think of judges, we think of the Wapner or Judy variety. That's not the judge here in the Old Testament. Rather than a courtroom leader, think of a military leader. So the book of Judges is about these tribal warlords whom God uses to deliver his people from bondage and oppression to enemy nations. So quiz time here. According to verse 18, here's your quiz. Verse 18, what is God's motivation for sending the judges? Why does God send the judges to deliver his people? If you look in the middle of verse 18, it says, For the Lord relented because of their groaning, under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So, Israel groans. They're all in with these false gods. They're all about Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech and every other manifestation of paganism. They're all in. It's not just a little dallying. Their, their hearts are bound with these false gods. God sends an enemy nation to bring righteous judgment on Israel. And under the oppression of that enemy, God's people groan, and God hears the groan. They suffer. God sees their suffering. We're not told that they repented, and God responded. We're not told they called for help, and God responded. God just hears the groan. And in his compassion, in his great grace, he sends a deliverer for his people. This is the gospel in the book of Judges. God doesn't deliver his people because they earned it, but rather while they were still sinners, he sent the deliverer for them to rescue them, to bring them up, to cleanse them, restore them in their covenant with Yahweh. They groan and God gives. What a beautiful picture of a compassionate God. There's a common critique of God that says that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. God of the Old Testament seems angry. God of the New Testament seems nicer. But I want you to pay attention to what's happening here in Judges chapter 2. Some people will say, well, God of the New Testament is full of grace. And in Judges chapter 2, guess what? God is likewise full of grace. His people are idol worshipers. They have rejected Yahweh. And in the groaning of their deserved judgment, God gives them a way out. A God of incredible grace. The book of Judges is hard. But the reason it's hard is not because of God, but because of the people. In our continual pursuit of sin, the hope in Judges is from a God of grace who repeatedly brings hope and salvation to his people. Another critique, people will say, well, you know, God in the Old Testament, he's so violent towards sin. But we just spent time in Matthew chapter 27, and we saw the violence of God against sin face to face, but this time that violence was unleashed on God the Son, Jesus Christ, so that you wouldn't have to bear it. 
God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, same God. He doesn't go through some change or transition. He's a God of grace, a God who is serious about sin, a God who is compassionate towards his people. So there's hope here for us that judgment of God on sin might make us quiver, but the compassion of God for the sinner ought to make us run to him. If judgment seems too scary a motivation, perhaps compassion and God's beauty and God's love for you is the right motivation for you to turn from your sin and to trust in the one who gave everything for you. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to get cleaned up first. He didn't die for you because he knew the potential you had. He didn't die for you because you're favored among everyone else. He He died for you because you are dead in your sin, by nature an object of God's wrath, and there is no hope for you apart from his compassionate grace and love. And he loves you in this way, laid down his life for you. Your sin deserves and requires punishment. And that punishment is taken by God the Son at the cross. And if he just died and stayed dead, he's like every other person who ever died, and we've We're silly for being here today. But he died and three days later he rose from the dead. His death is different. He himself is different. He's not a man who became God. He is God who came to us and took on flesh and died in your place so you could live in his life. He promises that when you come by faith, he's going to give this to you. God is always compassionate And I love how one writer said it, you can't invent this kind of God. I wouldn't write the story this way. Israel sins, God sends oppressors, Israel groans, and then God sends mosquitoes and boils and more oppression because they deserve it. That's how I write the story, but that's not what God's like. He's made a way for you before you even knew you needed a way. And you've got to trust him today. Here's what's always true. We're always in a battle for holiness. God's always faithful, especially in his judgment on sin. He's always faithful in his compassion to us. A fourth thing that's always true about God is God always shapes his children. Always shapes his children. God's never without an agenda. His discipline of Israel is always for a purpose. He wants them to learn. He wants them to be different. He doesn't just send enemy nations just for the sake of smacking Israel on the wrist and saying, oh, you shouldn't have done that. He's working something in his people. So what's his creative discipline of Israel towards the end of chapter 2, verse 21? He says, I'll no longer drive out before them the enemy nations that Joshua left when he died. So God willingly chooses to leave enemy nations side by side with Israel in this promised land. And he does it for two stated reasons. The first reason is in verse 22. I will use these nations to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. God's going to test Israel. And he wants to see if they will walk in the way of the Lord. What does it mean to walk in the way of the Lord, it means obedience. Obedience to the word of the Lord is walking in the way of the Lord. So if Israel's problem is that they're too much like the culture around them, they're not separate and holy as they ought to be, how can they become holy? Their holiness is formed in them by walking in the way of the Lord. 
by being obedient to his word. Here's the question. Is it possible that God has put a church in Hingham to test us in a very similar way? Is it possible that we exist in the most unchurched state in the nation because God is testing us to see whether we will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it? I believe we would be foolish to think otherwise. We are not in this culture to be invisible. We are not here to assimilate. We're here to be a different people, to be transformational in the way we live our lives and the way we speak. We are a people set apart. We belong to a different kingdom, a distant country. And so Christian husbands love their wives in a different way. We love our wives as Christ loved the church. And Jesus didn't love the church from a throne with a scepter and a remote control. He loved the church by laying down his life. Our model for what it is to be a Christian husband is a mutilated, suffocating, naked Jewish man suffering on the cross, humiliated in front of his mother. That's what it is to be a Christian husband. Not less. And you can't be more. That's what it is. Christian husbands are different. To be a Christian wife is to be a different kind of woman. And and so Christian wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And submission to Christ is never marked by a loss of personhood or abuse or a loss of value. But submission to Christ is marked by joy and purpose and exaltation and gladness, and so it is with wives and husbands. Christian singles live their lives in a different way than the rest of the world. Their contentment is in Christ. They cherish holiness and purity in their relationships. They don't throw themselves after cheap companionship, nor do they live isolated lives either. Rather, they live in an abundance of community and togetherness. Christians have different relationships with money, work, rest, sexuality, parenting, neighbors, refugees, government, and the unborn, just to name a few. God's Word speaks to these areas. The question is, do you pass the test? Do you walk in the way of the Lord in these areas? Is obedience a marker in your life? There's a second reason God leaves these nations behind. One was to form obedience in his people. The second reason is in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Look at what it says real quick. It says, These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. So it seems God wants to make soldiers out of his people, but I I think that conclusion is short-sighted. You see, anytime God's people followed him into battle, their victories were not because of their military might. Their victories were only because of their trust in the Lord. So in verse 2, where it says he did this to teach them warfare, the desired outcome, I believe, is trust in the Lord. He's going to shape their holiness by leaving these nations among them and testing God's people to trust in him in the midst of this crisis, this conflict. The question for us is this, is it possible that God has led us into crisis situations so that we would learn to trust him? 
listen to how David describes God in Psalm chapter 18, just the first three verses. Just listen. I want you to hear the descriptors David uses of God. In Psalm 18, just verses 1 through 3, he says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield. And the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise. And I've been saved from my enemies. In these three verses, David describes God using eight different names. Those are beautiful things to be able to say, to join with David and say, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. But you can't claim that testimony the testimony of Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3, unless you've also got a testimony like Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. Whereas when we are in the pit that God is strong in our refuge, in our deliverer, the rock in whom we take refuge, only when we are in crisis do we see God work in these ways and learn to trust. There our holiness is shaped. God never leaves us alone. Every crisis is an opportunity to trust in the sovereign, omnipotent, majestic, glorious, eternal God of our salvation, every crisis. So Judges 2, the start of verse, chapter 3, has helped us see the importance of so many factors in our holiness this morning. Holiness for us, this is what we've said, it's a constant battle. God's always faithful. God's always compassionate. God's always shaping us. I believe when we hold the truths of Judges 2 and 3 in front of us, it propels us towards holiness in our relationship with the Lord. It's so easy for you and I to get disheartened by the state of things around us. ISIS continues their massacre in the Middle East. We're now in an escalating Cold War with North Korea. The suffering of civilians in Syria is a daily atrocity and condemnation of the powers of this world to stop it. I don't have to continue for you to agree that things are rotten in the world around us. How does it change? How do things get different? How do your neighbors find hope? How do your co-workers live life in a different way? How does the South Shore change? If it's going to change, it's going to be because of holy Christians. Not simply moral Christians, not invisible Christians, but holy, set apart, trusting, obeying followers of Jesus Christ. When we live in this holiness way, we are infusing the world with the things that matter. Justice, peace, comfort, kindness, purity, hope, love, the gospel, these are the things that come from Christians living holy lives with their Lord. Brothers and sisters, you need more than a Facebook faith to glorify Christ in a sin-decaying world. We need holy hearts. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for your word to us, and thank you for 
the grace with which we can learn from Israel's mistakes. We can learn from those mistakes because we've made those mistakes ourselves. Holy Spirit, help us to see ourselves right this morning. Press in conviction as we consider your word and consider our lives. And move us towards you in glad repentance. For my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, God the Son, Jesus Christ, open their eyes and bring this hope of new life to them. Let them trust in you by faith, not by works, not by morality, not by religious deeds, but by faith alone today. I know you'll bring salvation. 